Have you ever come in second place? It's almost worse than coming in dead last sometimes, right? And you may not be aware of this, but from 1788 until 1800, the procedure of an election in America held that the person with the most electoral votes became the president and the person with the second most became vice president. This sometimes resulted in the commanders-in-chief having zero policy unity with his counterpart. Although until Harry Truman, the position of vice president had virtually no power at all. It always was, and still is, the responsibility of the vice president to preside over the Senate and to only get involved when he or she, so far only he's, needs to cast a tie-breaking vote. Scattered curiosity, the halls of the Senate have busts of every single vice president in our nation's history. To become vice president of the United States, you have to be 35 years or older, a native-born citizen, and a U.S. resident for 14 years where, up until 1977, he resided in his own house. Walter Mondale and his family became the first vice president to live in government housing at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. And believe it or not, the United States actually has more vice presidents than presidents, 47 to 44. And we are going to get to know every single one of them today in this week's episode, Silver Foxes. Before John Adams had the honor of being the first vice president to perhaps the most famous president of the United States, George Washington, he held a position that you will hear a lot in this episode, the United States Minister to the Court of St. James's, which is basically the United States Ambassador to Great Britain, a position that Adams held from 1785 to 1788. John Adams was renowned for being arrogant and had the nickname of his rotundity due to his weight. And if you look at paintings of him, he appears to have a perfectly round head, just like Charlie Brown. Rats. And he is quoted as having said, The vice presidency is the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. A sentiment greatly shared by many of the men that we will meet today. There was virtually no communications whatsoever between George Washington and John Adams during the first eight years of this administration. But as Adams resided over the Senate, he cast 31 tie-breaking votes, more than any other vice president. And he went on to become the second president but the first president to only serve one term. And before Thomas Jefferson would become vice president to John Adams, or president himself, or put on the $2 bill, he was first 
the first U.S. Secretary of State, who lost the 1796 Electoral College to John Adams by only three votes. So, he became the vice president to the Federalist John Adams and opposed the president's Alien and Sedition Acts. Jefferson became president number three for two terms and would later go on to found the University of Virginia. Scattered curiosity, Thomas Jefferson became the first of three presidents collectively known as the Virginia Dynasty of Presidents, Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, who would dominate the White House for the next 25 years. Aaron Burr served as member of the New York State Assembly and was a longtime established lawyer and revolutionary before he served as vice president to Thomas Jefferson. And in 1801, Aaron Burr shot and killed the founder of the New York Evening Post, the former Treasury Secretary and Broadway superstar Alexander Hamilton in a duel which also killed his career. And after his time in office, he traveled to Europe and the American West before changing his last name to his mother's maiden name, Edwards. George Clinton is a world-class funk musician worth checking out. The less funky George Clinton is also a guy that I should know more about. He was the first governor of New York for over two decades up until the time that he had the rare honor as serving as vice president for two different presidents, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, before dying in office in 1812 and being the first of many vice presidents to do so. Clinton would also be the first of three vice presidents from the Northeast that helped the Virginia dynasty that I talked about earlier with the Virginia-New York alliance that helped keep the Jeffersonian Republicans afloat for six consecutive terms. Eldbridge Jerry, ooh, you know I love to say that name, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence the Articles of Confederation, and was the ninth governor of Massachusetts, and the reason why we have the word gerrymandering, which makes sense if you look at his last name. And the word refers to the way that electoral districts are reformed and reassessed to aid the dominant party at the polls, which he successfully did in his second gubernatorial term. And he was the man who replaced the deceased Vice President George Clinton in 1813, but he didn't do a very good job because he too died in office. But both of these guys were in their 70s at the time. In fact, almost all of the Vice Presidents were older than the Presidents under which they served. Crazy, huh? Daniel D. Tompkins served as the fourth governor of New York for a decade and helped restructure the state militia. And he was actually offered the position of Secretary of State in 1814, but declined it 
before running alongside James Monroe in 1816 and 1820, making him the very first of seven two-term vice presidents. And he was renowned for being a drunken embezzler and, quote, degraded sot, that Congress actually withheld funds from his salary because he did so little of his job. Daniel D. Tompkins died three months after leaving office. John C. Calhoun was the 10th U.S. Secretary of War under President Tyler and James K. Polk until he became the second and last vice president to serve under two different presidents of two opposing parties, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. And Calhoun was also the first vice president to resign from office in 1832 so he could run for Senate. The next vice president resignation won't happen for another 140 years with Spiro Agnew. And John C. Calhoun continued to serve his country even after he was vice president and served as a U.S. senator to South Carolina from 1832 to 1843 and had a brief stint as secretary of state from 1844 to 1845 and then back to U.S. senator from 1845 to 1850. God, I wish we saw more of this today. Wouldn't you love to see Obama in the Senate? Martin Van Buren was also the U.S. Minister to the Court of St. James's and Secretary of State to Andrew Jackson before serving Jackson in the role of Vice President in 1833 for the newly established Democratic Party. And the anti-Jacksonites formed the Whig Party. And Martin Van Buren went on to become the one-term only 8th President of the United States, dubbed Martin Van Ruin. And to learn more about why he was called Martin Van Ruin, I invite you to listen to our 4th of July President's episode titled Ooh Ah, or Oval Officers Ones One by One, A Hunk Ahead Honchos, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Blueberry. I mean, you're listening to us right now, right? All right, moving on. Richard Mentor Johnson was serving as a United States representative to Kentucky's 13th district before becoming Martin Van Buren's vice president in 1837. And Johnson had a bit of a shady past, and it's thought that he killed the infamous Shawnee chief Tecumseh. And another scandal of his was that he kept one of his slaves by the name of Julia Chin as a wife after fathering her child when he was promoted to the vice president in 1837. And after his four years as vice president, he went back to being a Kentucky representative from 1841 to 1843 and also in 1850. John Tyler only served as vice president to William Henry Harrison for 32 days due to Harrison getting pneumonia after giving a ridiculously long inauguration speech in cold, rainy weather. 
And since there was no protocol for such a situation, John Tyler argued that he naturally should just take the helm and he became president number 10, where he earned the nickname His Accidency. And Tyler was one of two vice presidents to side with the Confederate States in the Civil War. The other was John C. Breckinridge. And Tyler was also the first vice president not to have any vice president at all. Scattered curiosity, John Tyler is the Tyler that is referred to in the 1840 political slogan and hit song, Tippecanoe and Tyler 2. Go online and give it a listen. I'll wait here on pause. Okay, you got it? Good. Next up is George Mifflin Dallas, who many believe the town of Dallas, Texas to be named for. Now, the jury's still out on that one. But we do know for sure that he had a successful law practice, was mayor of Philadelphia, and then governor of Pennsylvania before being appointed as the U.S. minister to Russia from 1837 to 1839. Dallas often referred to his wife as Mrs. Vice, and after four years with James K. Polk, George Dallas made an unsuccessful run for president himself, but had to settle for the position of the U.S. Minister to the Court of St. James's from 1856 to 1861. Millard Fillmore was a moderate anti-slavery New York State Comptroller when he was brought on to the pro-slavery Virginian Whig Zachary Taylor's ticket to appease the voters. And when Taylor died... Just a year into his term, Fillmore became the 13th president of the United States from 1850 to 1853. And Millard also had no vice president during his three years in command. And unlike his predecessor, he supported the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which most likely lost him the 1852 Whig nomination to Winfield Scott. Fillmore instead became the very first chancellor of the University of Buffalo, New York. William Rufus King was the only vice president to be from Alabama and had a long career in politics, serving as a U.S. senator to Alabama for nearly 30 years before becoming the minister to France and then the president pro temp. But William Rufus King would have an extremely short stint of just one month in the office of vice president when he died just three weeks into his term, making him the vice president with the shortest term in history. And the office would again remain vacant for another four years. John C. Breckinridge was a U.S. representative to Kentucky from 1851 to 1855 before becoming the youngest vice president at the age of 36. And he would go on to be a Kentucky senator after leaving the office, where, as I stated before, he sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War 
fought for the South as a major general, and even served as the Confederate Secretary of War. And he was later indicted for treason. Hannibal Hamlin was a U.S. Senator from Maine from 1848 to 1861 and the first Republican Vice President to the first Republican President, Abraham Lincoln, whom he had never even met until the election. Hamlin only served as vice president for Lincoln's first term and returned to Capitol Hill to serve as senator to Maine from 1869 to 1881 and the U.S. minister to Spain from 1881 to 1882. Scattered curiosity... Hannibal Hamlin was never asked to join Lincoln's second-term run for president because Honest Abe needed to even out his re-election ticket in 1864 to help his Southern Reconstruction efforts get passed. So, Hannibal instead became the 15th governor and the military governor of Tennessee. And it then became the task of Andrew Johnson to stand in the shadow of Abraham Lincoln. And as if being from the South didn't make Johnson different enough from Hannibal Hamlin, he was also a Democrat. Remember, Lincoln was a Republican. I love this. I wish that we had more of this today, don't you? Everyone would have more of a voice. Johnson would, of course, become president upon Lincoln's assassination in 1865, serving only one term, and nearly avoiding an impeachment conviction by just one vote before returning to politics a decade later as a U.S. Senator to Tennessee. Consequently, the office of vice president remained vacant during the Johnson administration as well. Schuyler Colfax was a railroad bribe-taking U.S. representative to Indiana's 9th District from 1855 to 1869 and was the Speaker of the House from 1863 to 1869 when he voted to abolish slavery with the 13th Amendment. And as a running mate to Ulysses S. Grant in 1868, they were the youngest duo to run for office in the 19th century. But youthful good looks and an impressive Amish-looking beard was not enough to secure Colfax's hold on the office of vice president for Grant's second term. That honor instead went to Henry Wilson, an anti-slavery Republican U.S. senator from Massachusetts who wrote a three-volume history about slavery and was the man to introduce the bill that ended up abolishing slavery. Henry Wilson served as a senator for nearly 20 years before becoming vice president to Ulysses S. Grant's second term, the last office that he will ever hold, because he, too, died while in office. William A. Wheeler was an honest lawyer from New York who fought for racial equality as well, and served as a U.S. representative to New York's 19th district, where he was elected to Congress five times and refused a pay hike in 1873 that Congress gave to itself. 
he too was a candidate designed to mellow out a heavy-sided ticket with the incorrigible Rutherford B. Hayes, who is supposed to have asked his wife in a letter, quote, I am ashamed to say, who is Wheeler, end quote. And you'll remember from our President's episode, ooh-ah, Rutherford was commonly referred to as Rutherfraud and his fraudulency. Poor William A. Wheeler was screwed. But not Chester A. Arthur, who had been practicing law in New York City when President Grant made him the collector of the Port of New York in 1871. He was then the 10th chairman of the New York State Republican Committee from 1879 to 1881, before briefly serving James A. Garfield as vice president until Garfield died just 200 days in office by assassination, making way for Arthur to become president number 21. And Chester A. Arthur was the last president to serve without any vice president at all. Thomas A. Hendricks, gosh, a lot of these guys have the middle initial A, huh? Served in both the Senate and the House of Representatives where he voted against the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution regarding Reconstruction. And Thomas Hendricks went on to be the 16th governor of Indiana from 1873 to 1877 after losing twice prior, and he even ran for vice president twice prior and lost before finding victory with Grover Cleveland. And when Thomas A. Hendricks finally got the job, he only served for nine months before dying in his sleep. And once again, the office would remain vacant for nearly four years. Levi P. Morton was a congressman from New York who had a truly great mustache and mutton chops and turned down James Garfield's offer to be his vice president so he could instead be the U.S. Minister to France from 1881 to 1885, where he ceremoniously put the first rivet in the big toe of the Statue of Liberty, which was being constructed at the time. And after batting cleanup for Benjamin Harrison for a term, Levi P. Morton would return to New York and serve as governor for a year, starting in 1895. He lived to be 96 years old. Adlai E. Stevenson served in Congress for a while before becoming the very first Assistant U.S. Postmaster General from 1885 to 1889, appointed by Grover Cleveland during his first term, greatly so that Stevenson could fire all of the Republican postmasters in the country and replace them with Democratic ones. Cleveland then invited the loyal Adlai Stevenson to be his vice president for his second go at being president. And some scattered curiosities? Adlai Stevenson's son was the Illinois Secretary of State. His grandson, also named Adlai, was governor of Illinois, who also ran for president twice 
during the 1950s. And his great-grandson, Adlai Ewing Stevenson II, was a United States senator. So that explains a question I've had in my mind ever since growing up as a kid outside of Chicago. And that is, why are there so many Adlai Stevenson schools in Illinois? And now I know, and knowing's half the battle. Garrett A. Hobart was a school teacher who got into politics via his wife's father, who was the mayor of Patterson, New Jersey. And Hobart soon got himself into the Senate. And from 1892 to 1896, he was the vice chairman of the Republican National Committee and soon found corporate sponsorship to run for vice president alongside the Republican William McKinley, a man that he had never met before. And Hobart, too, died in office from heart complications. Theodore Roosevelt was the 33rd governor of New York for about a year before being called upon to run alongside McKinley in the 1900 elections, and he will, of course, become the 26th president of the United States and the youngest president in U.S. history. JFK was the youngest elected president after McKinley is assassinated. Now, Theodore Roosevelt was covered in great detail in last month's full-length Scattered Curiosities, episode 3.1, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians, part two. So I will direct you there to get more info on this vice president. But one fact that you won't find there, Theodore Roosevelt once called the vice presidency, quote, a stepping stone to oblivion, end quote. Charles W. Fairbanks was a reporter for a brief period before becoming a lawyer who had many clients in the railroad business. He was a good friend of William McKinley's and became another one of these U.S. senators from Indiana for eight years before being brought on as vice president to Teddy Roosevelt's second term. Scattered curiosity, Fairbanks, Alaska is named for him. James S. Sherman was a U.S. representative from New York's 27th District from 1903 to 1909 and had the nickname Sonny Jim because he was so friendly. Yet, when William Howard Taft made Sherman his vice president and asked him to send a message to Joseph Cannon, Sherman snapped back at him and said, quote, You will have to act on your own account. I am to be vice president, and acting as a messenger boy is not part of the duties. End quote. Shortly thereafter, Sherman died of Bright's disease, leaving his office vacant for a year. Thomas R. Marshall was the 27th governor of Indiana from 1909 to 1913 and was the second two term vice president serving under Woodrow Wilson. Crazy, right? I mean, this is vice president number 28. And Thomas would be busy during those eight years because he was only in office for one year before World War I broke out. And this is a turning point when America joins the world stage in a major way. And I want Trey Parker and Matt Stone to do a Team America World Police prequel that takes place during World War I. Those guys are geniuses. And speaking of geniuses, 
If you want to learn just everything about World War I in the most fascinating detail, listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Blueprint for Armageddon series. It's super duper long, but really informs the procession of the events that follow. World War II, of course, the Cold War, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, all of this stuff has roots that were planted in World War I. Calvin Coolidge was the 48th governor of Massachusetts from 1919 to 1921, where he broke a Boston police strike and would become the 29th vice president from 1921 to 1923, and then the 30th president from 1923 to 1929 after Warren G. Harding dies in the middle of the night. And Calvin Coolidge was sworn in by his own father, who was a justice of the peace, the same evening that Harding died before Calvin Coolidge then went back to bed and dealt with it in the morning. Charles G. Dawes was a lawyer and the first director of the U.S. Bureau of the Budget for a year before winning a Nobel Peace Prize in 1925 for fixing Germany's post-war economy, and he became the vice president to Calvin Coolidge the very same year. And after his four years as vice president, Charles Dawes went on to become the U.S. minister to the court of St. James's for a couple of years. Scattered curiosity, Charles Dawes is the only vice president to have written a hit song, Melody in A Major, in 1912. And the song then became It's All in the Game when it was given lyrics and eventually climbed the charts to enjoy time as a number one hit in 1958 when Tommy Edwards released it just seven years after Charles Dawes' death. Charles Curtis was a U.S. Senator from Kansas for two decades, President Pro Temp for a year, and Senator Majority Leader from 1925 to 1929. And he actually lost the bid for the presidential nomination in 1929 to Herbert Hoover, who in turn asked Curtis to run alongside him. He did, and they won. Not bad, buddy. Neither man acknowledged the other in their inaugural addresses. John Nance Garner was known as Cactus Jack and was a U.S. representative for Texas's 15th district for 30 years, House Minority Leader from 1929 to 1931, and Speaker of the House from 1931 to 1933. And as the first second fiddle to the unstoppable Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John Nance Garner famously said, quote, The vice presidency isn't worth a bucket of warm piss. End quote. Scattered curiosity, John Garner lived to be 98 years old, but on his 95th birthday, November 22nd, 1963, he got a happy birthday phone call from then-President John F. Kennedy just a couple of hours before Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Henry A. Wallace was the 11th Secretary of Agriculture for about a decade, and then 
served as FDR's second vice president for the historic third term. Wallace supported FDR's New Deal and spoke out for civil rights and became the first sitting vice president to go to the Soviet Union. And instead of being asked to join FDR for the unprecedented fourth term in office, Henry Wallace was instead transitioned to the position of the 10th U.S. Secretary of Commerce for a year to make way for the new guy, Harry Truman. And Wallace will actually challenge Truman as a progressive party candidate in 1948, but lose out to him yet again. Harry S. Truman was a U.S. senator from Missouri for a decade, starting in 1935. And he had only met Franklin Delano Roosevelt twice and only served as vice president for 82 days before Roosevelt's death in 1945. And FDR regarded him so little that Truman wasn't even aware of the Manhattan Project, which of course gave birth to the atomic bomb, until after FDR was dead. Remember, World War II is happening right now. And when Truman became the 33rd president of the United States, he would be the one to push the button for the very first time. Alban W. Barkley was a senator from Kentucky for over 20 years before taking the helm as Harry Truman's vice president for four years. And then he returned to his old Kentucky home to be a U.S. senator again for a year. Scattered curiosity... Albin Barkley's grandson coined the term Veep in 1949 as an alternative title for the position, and the Oxford English Dictionary noted it the same year. You owe him, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Richard Milhouse Nixon started off as a senator to California from 1950 to 1953, and almost lost his spot on the ticket alongside Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952 when Nixon was under suspicion of wrongdoings in concern to his financial backers and political expenses. And while he was still senator of California, he sweet-talked the nation with his famous checkers speech where he told the country plainly that he did keep one political gift. It's true. A dog named Checkers, his children's beloved pet. Obviously, he went on to be president too. Eventually, but not right away like the other VPs to Big P. Nixon would become the third two-term vice president at number 36. Lyndon B. Johnson was a senator from Texas for more than a decade and Senate Majority Leader for six and was even nicknamed Master of the Senate. Obviously, he took over when Kennedy was assassinated and was elected in his own right to be the 36th President of the United States from 1963 to 1969. And the office of vice president went empty for the last two years of his first term. And nerds like me will appreciate Johnson's influence over Kennedy in regards to the space race. Because in 1961, John F. Kennedy 
was a little unsure about the Apollo program, and Johnson sent Kennedy a note that stressed that, quote, dramatic accomplishments in space are being increasingly identified as a major indication of world leadership, end quote. And uh, it didn't hurt that NASA's headquarters is also in Johnson's home state of Texas in Houston. Hubert H. Humphrey was a progressive senator to Minnesota for 15 years and a Senate majority whip. And the Senate majority whip is kind of like being the vice Senate majority leader. And Hubert Humphrey was the lead author of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 before serving as Lyndon Johnson's vice president. After which... Humphrey himself unsuccessfully ran for president against Richard Nixon and instead became a U.S. senator to Minnesota again. And his take on the role of vice president was this, quote, Once the election is over, the vice president's usefulness is over. He's like a second stage of a rocket. He's damn important going into orbit, but he's always thrown off to burn up in the atmosphere. End quote. And that is Hubert Horatio Humphreys Harumph. Yes, that is his full name. Hubert Horatio Humphrey. Hooray. Spiro Agnew was the 55th governor of Maryland and was Richard Nixon's first vice president, sometimes called his hatchet man, until he resigned amid criminal allegations and investigations involving extortion, money laundering, bribery, and tax fraud from his time as governor of Maryland. And this scattered curiosity is totally stupid, but for whatever reason, Spiro Agnew doesn't look the way that I picture him at all when I hear his name. Now, I was not alive to ever see him in person, just tons of pictures, but any time I've ever heard his name since I was a kid, I have this vision of this wiry old man with crazy hair and glasses who speaks with a cliched Italian accent. But he is, in fact, the first Greek-American vice president and Greek-American governor of Maryland. Don't judge a book by its cover and title, right? Gerald Ford was once a model who appeared in Cosmopolitan magazine, as you may know from our President's episode, Ooh Ah. And Ford went on to be a U.S. representative to Michigan's 5th District for two dozen years and House Majority Leader for eight before filling the position left vacant by Spiro Agnew's resignation. And then a year later filling the position left vacant by Nixon's resignation. And Gerald Ford was never elected to vice president or president by the people, but he did end up holding the office of president for three years from 1974 to 1977 and was the first sitting president to be spoofed on Saturday Night Live by Chevy Chase. Scattered curiosity, Nixon was the first president to allow the vice president to have an office in the White House. Nelson A. Rockefeller 
was the heir to the famously rich Rockefellers, which we've all heard of from Standard Oil and the Rockefeller Center. Nelson A. Rockefeller served as the 49th governor of New York from 1959 to 1973 and somehow looks exactly the way his name makes him sound to me. He was a philanthropist who focused his attention on housing, education, crime, and transportation, and even ran for president himself in 1964 and 1968, where he lost both times. Obviously, there was never a President Rockefeller. And he died two years after serving as Gerald Ford's vice president. Walter Mondale was a U.S. senator to Minnesota for 12 years before becoming Jimmy Carter's understudy, and the two of them challenged Reagan and Bush in 1981, but came up empty. But Mondale would lick his wounds and challenge Reagan again in 1984 alongside the first female vice presidential candidate to a major party, Geraldine Ferraro. And the two would run on a campaign for equal rights, an increase of taxes, lowering the national debt, and called for a nuclear freeze. Now, there never was a President Mondale. Instead, he became the U.S. ambassador to Japan from 1993 to 1996. Scattered curiosity, Walter Mondale started the tradition of the vice president having weekly lunches with the president. George Herbert Walker Bush was previously a congressman, chairman of the RNC, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in China, and the 11th director of the CIA for a year before teaming up with Ronald Reagan for eight years. And he is the fourth two-term vice president to go on to be the president himself and was technically president for a little while in 1985 while Ronald Reagan was having colon surgery. J. Danforth Quayle, or Dan, was another Indiana senator and congressman from 1981 to 1989. And after George H.W. Bush named him as a running mate, the Democrat Lloyd Benston criticized Quayle by saying famously, quote, Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy, end quote. Danforth famously misspelled the word potato while visiting an elementary school in Trenton, New Jersey, when he corrected a 12-year-old student for misspelling the word potato during a spelling bee because the student left off the E at the end. Only there is no E at the end of potato. But in Dan Quayle's defense, he was reading off an official flashcard that was given to the judges, and the flashcard was itself misspelled with an E at the end of potato. Dan would never live it down and seemed to have difficulty gaining respect from that point forward. Do you know how long it took before I could correctly spell the word restaurant? Rest, ow, rant. And... Perhaps my favorite fact today, and I can't believe it took this long to get to it, but in Huntington, Indiana, is the Quail Vice Presidential Learning Center, 
which is a former church that has been converted into the only museum dedicated to the vice presidents of the United States. And its motto is second to one. And Dan Quayle visited an astonishing 47 countries on George Bush's behalf during his four years in office. And I never knew that the Tennessee Senator Al Gore Jr. served in Vietnam until just now. Cool, right? And he is the spitting image of his dad, Al Gore Sr., who was also a U.S. Senator. But Al Jr. one-ups his dad because he also served in the House of Representatives for eight years and served as vice president to Bill Clinton for eight years. But would become more famous for his eco-documentary and Inconvenient Truth than for his time as vice president. And if you're from Generation X or older, you may remember his wife, Tipper Gore, and her group PMRC, Parents Music Resource Center, who are, were, partially responsible for those explicit lyric stickers you see on CDs that have lyrics that are harder than PG-13. And if you are so young that you don't even own a CD, I am delighted to have such a young listener as yourself. Hashtag blessed. By the way, Al Gore is the fifth two-term vice president as number 45. Dick Cheney was also a House Minority Whip for a while, chief of staff under President Ford, served as a congressman for eight years, and then became the 17th Secretary of Defense from 1989 to 1993 before serving as Veep to Bush II, the rebushening. And some suspect that he was basically the president during the first decade of the millennium using W as his puppet. He is the sixth two-term vice president who, in 2006, accidentally shot a 78-year-old Texas attorney and friend of his, Harry Whittington, while hunting quail. Sometimes called Quailgate, the incident makes Dick Cheney the second and hopefully last sitting vice president to shoot a man while in office since Aaron Burr. Scattered curiosity, in 2001, Dan Quayle was telling Dick Cheney about his vice presidential duties, fundraising efforts, and foreign trips, and explaining that, quote, the role of vice president is what the president wants, end quote. And Cheney responded by saying, quote, I have a different understanding with the president, end quote. Dick Cheney would be allowed to attend every meeting of the executive branch's foreign policy forum and the president's committee, which no vice president had ever done before. The New York Times said of his role as vice president, quote, Dick Cheney has transformed it into a veritable fourth branch of government. His authority at times seemed to eclipse that of President Bush, end quote. And others claim that he was, quote, the most powerful vice president in the history of our country. Joe Biden Jr. 
was the longest serving senator from Delaware for an impressive 36 years. Damn. Where he himself was a presidential candidate in 1998 and again in 2008. He served as chairman of the Foreign Relation and Judiciary Committees, spoke out against the Gulf War of 1991, and also chaired Supreme Court hearings for nominees Clarence Thomas and Robert Bork. He is the seventh, and thus far last, two-term vice president. And lastly, we have Mike Pence, a congressman from 2001 to 2013, the 50th governor of Indiana, and is currently the 48th vice president of the United States. And he has four gold teeth and a tattoo of Felix the Cat on his right buttocks. Okay, I'm kidding. Gee, settle down. I doubt very much that he has any tattoos at all. And at best, he maybe has like one or two gold fillings. Now, I am on the fence as to whether or not I should keep these government lists of curiosities coming with all of the secretaries of state. Now, we'll just have to wait and see how this episode is received. I'll tell you right now, our president's episode, Ooh Ah, seems to be the one that my listeners are listening the least to. But that's what's so great about Scattered Curiosities. If this week's topic doesn't interest you, next week will be totally different. So, we'll see you then. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show